just in case this is your first Sunday in St. Peter's, uh, you need to know that preaching at the morning service is really exhausting, but it doesn't usually age David Robertson quite the way it seems to have aged him today. And uh, I am a, I'm the substitute. So, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. If you've picked up a Bible on the way in at the desk, uh, it's page 635, 635. Uh, past week while, we spent, I think, four Sunday evenings on Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, there's certainly enough material in tonight's passage for another four, uh, but uh, in, in the Lord's providence, I hope it will just be one. So, we're going to read from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, to the end of verse 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. I don't know how much attention uh, people pay to sermon titles, or if you consult them on the church website, uh, but the title this evening is, With Parents Like These, You Should Listen. And I've been imagining the scenarios in some of our homes this afternoon where teenagers have suddenly felt they've got a stomach bug and uh, want to express my admiration for those parents and teenagers who, knowing that this was the title of the sermon, have come together this evening. Uh, if you're a parent, you may think this is really going to challenge my children, but don't forget the words with parents like these, and they may be checking up as you go home this evening on whether you really are parents like these. And this is really meant for a Christian family, probably with uh, young or mid-teenagers in it, but it's pretty clear from the way in which the New Testament uses this section of Proverbs 
that everything in the teaching of these early chapters, as well as the later chapters, even although it's teaching that fathers particularly were responsible to give to their sons, it's obviously given in that way so that it may be applicable in the whole of our lives. And it's very interesting to reflect, as we did one Sunday morning not too long ago, uh, that if we read a passage like this and think, boy, that's a bit uh, much to listen to my father and my mother in this way, that's a bit heavy-handed, and the warnings this passage gives, that's a bit negative, and I'm not really into negative Christianity, uh, we need to remember that Jesus took these verses and the whole book of Proverbs very much to heart, because uh, even although He had decidedly imperfect parents uh, who had misunderstood Him, uh, you remember that Luke tells us virtually in the same breath that He was submissive to them, and here's the thing, He grew in wisdom by being submissive to His parents. And this is such a big thing for us if we, are, if we are teenage Christians, because the goal in all this at the end of the day, the most important thing about my life at the end of the day, is whether I'm growing to be more and more like Jesus. And so, although these words sound terribly negative, uh, they're like your mother in her worst mood calling out to you from somewhere else in the house, whatever you're doing, don't do it. Uh, but I want us to see how significant this is for the life of the Christian believer. And if we're to do that, I think we need to understand that when we come to the book of Proverbs, in fact, when we come to any book of the Bible past Genesis chapters 1 to 3, we're in a situation where it's like turning on the television set and realizing that you're, you're 10 minutes into the program. And you've got a kind of choice. You can turn it off because you've missed the first 10 minutes, or you can stick with it and work out as you go along what the plot line is, or of course nowadays you can just rewind and begin at the beginning. And you see, we would completely misunderstand the book of Proverbs if we thought these words stood alone. They belong to a long story. And unless we know something about what has happened before we turned on and found that we were tuning into the book of Proverbs, uh, it, we would be very open to misunderstanding what's going on in a passage like this. Because what's in view here is parents who are believers, believers who read the book of Proverbs, learning what it is to live a grace-grounded, obedient, godly Christian life. Grace-grounded, obedient, godly Christian life in a fallen world. How to be godly in a world that's anti-godly. 
how to live for the glory of God in a world that has fallen, how to negotiate all the different situations of life in such a way that your life will glorify God. And in these opening chapters, what happens essentially is that parents are given a series of model talks, outlines, kind of thing, for example, that Sunday school teachers might get or Bible class leaders might get in a book that they use to make their own, to apply to their own family situation. And it's very important, therefore, for us, I think, first of all, to understand that Proverbs is a book that we can only truly grasp if we understand that the grace-driven, godly life is rooted in God's covenant. The grace-driven, godly life is rooted in God's covenant. I say that because actually the very fact that the Father is saying this is an indication that He understands God's covenant grace to His people. How when He redeemed them out of Egypt, how when He saved them from slavery and gave them the commandments on Mount Sinai, the life they were to lead was covenant-rooted and grace-driven. It's like not understanding the commandments unless you understand that they're rooted in God's saving of His people in the Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember a friend telling me about uh, an incident that apparently took place, I presume, sometime in, let's see, it must have been the 1930s or the 1940s when a chaplain at Buckingham Palace saw two princesses with party frocks on getting into a royal coach and the late queen mother wagging the royal finger at them and saying, now remember, girls royal princesses, royal manners. And your father and mother said that to you when you went out of the house. Remember who you are. You're a MacLeod or a MacLean or a Mackenzie. So don't let the family down. Remember where you've come from. And this is true for believers. This is, this is one of the big drivers and shapers of our lives. We've been thinking in Romans 8 about how the Holy Spirit is the one who assures us that we are adopted children. We really belong to the Heavenly Father. And so the, the whole of the Bible, all of the Bible's exhortations, all of its imperatives, all of its do this and don't do that are rooted in this fact that you belong to the Heavenly Father. And so the whole goal of this teaching is that you would learn to live a godly, that is, a life that is like God, the life of a child that expresses the character of the Father. And this is the foundation virtually from the beginning of Scripture uh, as to how we live for the glory of God by recognizing 
that He has brought us into this covenant family. He has become our covenant Father. And He says to us now, royal children, royal manners. That's what will please me, and that's what will make you distinctive. And so you'll notice that before there are any negatives in this passage, the Father says this in verse 8 and 9, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Don't forsake your mother's teaching because they are A, a graceful garland for your head. And now what's the idea here? The idea here is is either attractiveness. Um, think of it this way. We, we, we do things to what we are, actually often for one simple reason, so that we will look our best. We wear things so we will look our best. And what he's saying is, listen, it's the teaching of God's Word that is going to transform your life and create a certain kind of clean beauty in it that will make you attractive, that will enable you to negotiate this world without your life being sullied by what this world wants to do to you. And at the same time, he says, it will be pendants for your neck, necklaces, now, perhaps that's got to do, I don't know why, I've never worn a necklace around my neck, but uh, it may be an attractive feature. Uh, it may in this instance, because this is the world in which they're living, it may be a symbol of the protection of your God, which was uh, what necklaces were. You know, you see these old pictures of the pharaohs, and, you know, they've all, the, they've all the bling around their neck. Why is it there? It's not just a matter of attractiveness. It's a matter of protection. It's a symbol of the protection of their God. And this is what the Father longs to see in His children. On the one hand, that they will grow in, the, in what the Scriptures call the beauty of holiness. There is something attractive about the life that is wholly given over to God. How do I know? Answer, Jesus. He was obviously magnetic until people realized that if they would not trust Him, they would need to crucify Him. And the Word of God will also be your protection. And this is, this is such a great thing to know. Actually, if you're young, it's a great thing that your parents know you know this. And if you're a teenager or a student, it's a huge thing to know this, that in this world you need protection. And of course, the Father is saying this to His children because children don't think they do need protection. He's been saying at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, please learn wisdom. And the problem when you're young is that you tend not to have much wisdom because you don't have the experience that would give you wisdom, but you think you've got all the wisdom you need. And you need protection. What's going to protect you? 
Well, he's saying, the instruction I'm giving you, what's the instruction he's giving them? It's the instruction of the Word of God that he's giving them. Like all the books of the Bible before Proverbs was written, all those marvelous stories about God's redemption, the way in which He brought out the nation, the way in which He transformed and saved and used individuals, all the instruction that had been given through the Psalms of David. And you see, when that seeps into your being, this is not a matter simply of the memory, although the memory is not unimportant. This is a matter of receiving the Word of God so that it begins to create instincts in you that provide armor for you so that you're almost instinctively able to smell a rat you're instinctively able to see this is going to do me harm. This will not make me attractive to the Lord or show His attractiveness to others. And you see, it's all rooted in this covenant relationship. Uh, you remember what the what the Father was instructed in the law of God. He said, take, take. God said, every opportunity you have, Father, take it to instruct your children in my ways so that it will begin to be, it will be written all over them. Of course, the, some of the Jews externalized that in the phylacteries that they wore where the big thing was wearing the phylactery on your forehead because God had said you need to plant the Word in your forehead. But God didn't mean you to put a box on your forehead that contained the commandments. He meant, I want my Word to get into your thick head so that it will transform you and your life will, will conform Remember what Spurgeon said about uh, John Bunyan, that you could prick him anywhere and he would bleed bibline. And that's what the Father has in view. That's why so many of these Old Testament believers, why I'm absolutely convinced Jesus Himself probably knew most of the Old Testament, if not the whole of the Old Testament, off by heart. And you think that's strange? I have a friend, one of the most distinguished Old Testament scholars in the world. He was in Jerusalem for a number of months. The man next door was a secular Jewish atheist and despised Christians. You Christians, you don't really know the Bible. I know the Psalms off by heart. And my friend said, prove it. He wasn't from Glasgow, but he said, prove it. And the man did. And you know, in many ways, we've lost that, haven't we? We've been so indoctrinated by the unbiblical and the false psychologies of the world that we believe it's bad for children to memorize anything, anything. But you see, you know, if you're young, you don't listen to a man as old as I am, but you know, when you get to this age, one of your regrets is you didn't memorize more. But it's not the memorization, it's the infiltration of the whole life that's in view here. In which, and this is so interesting, 
because you know you are the recipient of the covenant love of the Lord. You are meticulous in wanting to obey Him. That sounds like legalism to some people. Well, just fall in love. Sometimes you can see it. You can sometimes see it actually in this church. Some student turns up and suddenly he's clean. He may even be wearing a shirt. He's combed his hair. I mock not. What's happened to him? He's become meticulous because of the one he wants to please. And I guess it happens the other way around as well. Otherwise, the people down at the department store wouldn't be making half the profits that they're making. So we do it at a human level for a merely human and often changeable love. But this is the love of the Lord who has redeemed you. This is what the Father is to say to His Son. Listen to what your mom and dad say because we want your life to belong entirely to the Lord. And if that's the case, you need to grow in attractiveness, in godliness, and you need built into you instincts that will protect you and enable you to smell a rat. And actually, he goes on almost immediately to speak about that. So, first of all, the grace-driven godly life is rooted in God's covenant love. Second, the grace-driven godly life faces constant opposition. Now, there's a paradox here. Growth in attraction, constant opposition. But again, you see, unless we come to Proverbs in the context in which it was originally given to the Old Testament church, we may miss this. What's the context? Actually, the ultimate context is Genesis 3.15. And what's Genesis 3.15 a promise of? It's a promise of the coming of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, and it's a promise that from now, in the Garden of Eden, in the fall, from now until then, for the seed of this woman Eve, there will be nothing but a perpetual conflict. And you know, if you're looking for, if you're looking for uh, lenses that will enable you to understand what happens all the way from Genesis to actually to Revelation, that's one of the great lenses to look through. Everything fits into this. Everything fits into this ongoing conflict. It takes place, as it were, on a, on a, a corporate level with the conflict that God's people are constantly going through, the, the way in which they're always under attack. And it's true also of the individuals. You think about the, the individual biographies or mini-biographies that we have in the Bible. Everyone is constantly under attack. You think about the gospel narrative of Jesus' life. What's true is he's constantly under attack. What's true of Paul's letters? In so many different ways, he's saying, brethren, you need to understand you'll be constantly under attack. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. 
And uh, you see, this is why he says so much here. And you'll notice that uh, his opening words are in verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you. Now, just, you know, get one of the optometrists to come to us and say, now focus on that word entice. If you know your Old Testament even half well, you'll be able to work back and, and stop on situations in which this is exactly what happens right away back to where? Genesis chapter 3. What's going on in Genesis chapter 3? That serpent, that wily serpent, as he… In the narrative, he seems to kind of slither Eve along in the conversation. Do you notice that? Until eventually, you know, oops, we're at this tree. Let's talk about this tree. And he entices her. And do you remember what Eve says? Paul says this later. He says, the woman was deceived, and people get very antsy about that. But he's only quoting Eve. I was deceived. I was enticed. Now, the father is not wanting to encourage youngsters to go through life with a kind of conspiracy theory mentality about everything in their lives, but he is saying to them, if you are going to live the grace-driven, godly life, be sure that there will be all kinds of enticements for you to walk another way. And you'll notice that he, he lists them. And what's so interesting, you'll notice this in verses 13 and 14, what's so interesting is the constant repetition of the first-person plural. You notice that? A, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have we'll all of one purse. Everything in this section is we and us. Now, that's creating a that's creating a kind of atmosphere here. What is the atmosphere? It's, it's what we would call peer pressure. We're all doing it. Come and join us. And the subtext, because if you don't join us, you're very non-you. You don't really belong. We will demean you, and we will despise you and we may even persecute you. So, you don't really have much choice in this matter. We're all doing it. And what's so interesting uh, is this, and, and we're a community doing it. We are a united community doing it, and we've all got one purse. And you begin to feel more and more isolated, and the pressure can be very great, and the leverage that's being used is you're going to be on your own here. That's when we need to remember that one with God is an absolute majority in this world. And you see, when the Word of God begins to be your protection, and when you realize that you're under attack, then of course you're actually able to see through what's happening here. 
You are not inviting me into the gang. Actually, it becomes a mob here. You're not saying, come on and join the community because you care about me one whit. You want to do this because actually there's a very strong element in it that you need to destroy me as a believer. Remember how Paul ends Romans 1 in that way? It's very significant. He ends it that way. This long list of the way in which society falls apart when it turns away from God. And then he eventually says, and in order to justify themselves, they need to do everything they can to encourage others to share the same lifestyle. And you see, when you, when you understand that as a believer you're going to be constantly under attack, then in a way it doesn't surprise you. You're not taken by surprise. But if you don't have any wisdom, that is to say, if you don't have the instruction of God's Word and you're a young person, you'd, usually you don't have the experience to be able to see through people like that. And as we've seen, the wonderful thing about the book of Proverbs is it gives you wisdom in a certain way in these pictures that appeal to the imagination in order to help us understand the situation, to feel it in our emotions and our affections so that when we actually meet it, never having met it before in our lives, we see it for what it really is. And this is the wonderful thing the Father is encouraging his children, his son, obviously, to see. And I want you to notice something else. It may, it may just take a, a, a moment to help us understand this, but I want you to notice what sinners, and that's, we're all sinners, but sinners in the Old Testament is a category of people who are in open rebellion against God, however sophisticated it may be. He is saying they will entice you in, in certain ways. And what's so fascinating about the ways that are listed here is that they are very specific breaches of several of the commandments. If you're interested, the, there's an encouragement here to break commandments 6, 8, 9 and 10. Murder, which is a breach of the 6th commandment in verses 11 and 12. Theft, which is a breach of the 8th commandment in verse 13. Lying, which is a breach of the ninth commandment in verse 14. And coveting, which is a breach of the 10th commandment in verse 19. So, you might say, well, what about, what about the other two commandments that have to do with our relationships with each other? Well, they're implicit, aren't they? One, because the whole thing is started by the father saying, honor your father and mother. And the sexual breach of the seventh commandment actually is handled again and again in the passages that follow. But it's also implicit in the, the passion of these parents to see their children to be the Lord's, that, that the children are seeing in their parents that faithfulness to which the seventh commandment urges us. But you see, un underneath all this, now you see how this works. 
I think we've said before, the great, the great tragedy of our own nation, that is if you're Scottish, the great tragedy of our own nation, I speak only about this nation, is that our governments do not seem to understand that once you demean the Ten Commandments that God has given for all time to all people, you end up having to make more and more and more and more commandments to deal with the confusion that's been caused because the Maker's instructions for human life have been despised and demeaned by people who, of course, know better than God himself. But you see, if, you, if, if those commandments have been impressed into your heart, I, I grew up in a Sabbath-keeping home where there was no gospel and no church going. And I look back with thankfulness to the fact that my parents dinned the Ten Commandments into my soul. I wished, as they might have been able to do later on, they had done it with covenant gospel grace. But you know what that does? It creates instincts in you that enables you immediately to see through the enticers. My friends, even if you can't articulate it, it enables you to sense that can't possibly be pleasing to my heavenly Father. And there are so many passages in the Scriptures that confirm this to us. This is why David is able to say in Psalm 119 that because God's Word was in his heart, he had, he had a wisdom that was greater than his teachers as well as greater than his enemies. What a marvelous protection this was. The Torah of God, His redemptive grace, and His restorative pattern for living life to His glory. And I think in that connection, it's quite interesting to see what uh, language is used about these people. They're described as sinners when sinners entice you. Now, the Bible, the Old Testament particularly, has uh, a variety of words, picture words, to describe the nature of sin. And I think it's, it's probably significant that the, the term for sinner here is, is the noun that comes from the verb that means to fall, to fall short. Now, why is that interesting? So, this is not, this is not uh, the nuance of transgressing God's law. This is the nuance of falling short of something. Well, falling short of what? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, doesn't he? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in a sense, that's a real key to what is going on here. In a sense, that gives me the ultimate question for me to ask about everything. Whose glory is this really all about? And in this instance, it's not rocket science to see that it's not the glory of God. 
but the young person who grows old and who grows older, who has a single eye for the glory of God. He's, he's able, she is able to negotiate his or her way through every single situation in life, sometimes, of course, more easily than others by simply asking the question, in the light of what I know of the instruction God has given to me in His Word, which choice will bring most glory to God? Because that's what I'm for, my chief end. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? I mean, even if you only learn the first question of the shorter catechism, you ought to learn that one. The whole purpose of my life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and the two things go together. I can never enjoy Him without glorifying Him, and He will make sure that I'll never glorify Him without coming to enjoy Him. It's always the ultimate issue. Whose glory are we talking about here? So, the grace-driven godly life is rooted in God's covenant love. The grace-driven godly life always experiences opposition, and that's the reason, thirdly, the grace-driven godly life needs to be marked by spiritual discernment, which in a way is what wisdom is that the opening six, seven verses were really all about. And you see what, what's at stake here. What's at stake here is the way in which instruction in the Word of God begins to create instincts in me that enable me to see through the facade to the reality, to see through the facade to the reality. And you'll notice, you know, the more, the more a youngster reflected on this first father-son talk, I know many of you ever had that father-son talk, either gave it or had it. Some of our children need it more than others, don't they? Now, John, now, David, now, Peter, etc. We need to have a talk about this. But you see, when the covenant father instructs the covenant son, even the way in which he instructs him helps him to see reality for what it is. Because, for example, uh, this group of people, these sinners, are actually involved in deception. They're setting traps for people. But you notice at the end of the passage, he says, actually, they fall into their own traps. They are deceivers, and eventually they become self-deceived. They're, they're like people who think they can drive at any speed because they're indestructible, and they don't realize that by doing that, they're actually on the fast track to self-destruction. And there are some very striking illustrations of that in Scripture. And then you notice that great promise, come and join the community, because in the community, this is, this is what the community, when it's not the community of God, always promises. In the community, you'll find yourself. You'll find fullness of life. 
you will find everything you could possibly desire for yourself. But do you notice how the father is teaching his son to see through all this? Because instead of experiencing fullness of life, uh, look at the end of the passage in verse 19. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Isn't that interesting? They possess it. You know, this, could, this actually could be the verse that Jesus was thinking about when He said, what is it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the process loses his soul? And you see what the Father is doing. The Father's helping His children to see through to the reality. And even, even the community that's come, come and join us will have a common part. We're all agreed. Now, you've heard this kind of language. There, there is a particular pressure in our society that speaks about the community, and there ain't no community. And already we see it, we see it biting itself. There's only one community that can really last permanently, and that's the community that God creates. So what's he really saying? He's saying, you need, you need to be able to see what's really happening. And so you need to see the big picture. And you need to ask questions like, so where will this eventually lead? Where will this eventually lead me? And will that give me fullness of life? Is that what I've been made for? Of course, the answer is not. It's, it, more and more, it's kind of emblazoned now in the news and in the tragic lives of, of many of the, of the young men and women who are icons in their own generation, that they were promised fullness of life, and actually it simply led them to tragic, tragic, tragic death. So about everything, this youngster is really being encouraged to ask, who, whose glory are we talking about here? Where will this eventually lead me? What's the real truth of the matter? You know, you ever wonder how Jesus became Jesus? You do understand, He didn't drop from heaven when He was 30 years old. And the only thing we know about Jesus between the age of two and the age of 30, apart from the fact that he trained as some kind of skilled craftsman, and that he had a whole bundle of brothers and sisters, and that he lived in Nazareth, what else do you know about Jesus? Only one thing. He listened to his mom and dad and he grew in wisdom. That's all you know. And all we know about that is, and you can tell from Mary's song that she already knew the Scriptures when she was a teenager. All we know about that is, among other things, he was learning the Word of God 
and he was growing in wisdom. And if you and I want to be like Jesus, <laughs> that's the formula. If you're a young person and uh, the world is your oyster, but most of all you want to be like Jesus, then here's, here's the provision God makes for you. And the wonderful thing, dear, dear ones, let's understand this. God has given you the same provision for that spiritual growth that He gave to His Son. And the reason you can be sure that it works is because it worked in Him. He grew in wisdom. And listen to this, He grew in favor with God. I quite often say, partly because it's got, it shocks us into really understanding Jesus. If you believe in a Jesus who didn't grow in favor with God, then the Jesus you believe in is not the Jesus of the New Testament. How do I know that? Because it says in the New Testament, He grew in favor with God. And that's the only thing worth worrying about. And it solves so many problems is this way going to mean that I'll grow in favor with Him? Because I want so much to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to be like Jesus. So I know this message has a rather grim title. With parents like these, you should listen to them. But you should, because there is someone above them and behind them on whose behalf they're speaking to all of us. That's a great help, isn't it, to each of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and we often find it so hard to get our heads round the fact that He grew, not only physically, but in wisdom. But that He grew in favor with you. Not that He was ever out of favor with you. But the more He grew in wisdom, the harder the tests that He overcame the more you realized how much you had always loved Him, and the more He Himself grew from a baby to a teenager to a fully mature man. Oh, we are not surprised that there was a voice from heaven that said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we pray, Father, that You would so invest our lives with Your Word that You might be able to say the same thing about us, that we are Your beloved children and You take pleasure in us. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm going to finish our service by singing a song, um, Come O Fount of Every Blessing. And it's a prayer. Um, Tune my heart to sing your grace. And it fits very well with what we've been hearing. And so let's sing it as a prayer as we close the service this evening. Let's stand together. Come. Uh-huh. 